Hello, viewers and listeners. Welcome to part two of the finale of season two of Slaves to the Algo. When I started this podcast last year, the idea was to demystify the age of the algorithm. This season, I connected with different leaders from digital marketing to edtech to healthcare to travel to venture capital. We discussed how AI has transformed and is continuing to transform industries, professional and personal lives. Last week, I put together a compilation of some of my favorite moments from the first four episodes. Today, we're going to see more thoughts, ideas, trends, and innovation shared by my guests on season two. Let's begin. In episode five, I talked to Sandeep Reddy, doctor, medical informatician, AI specialist, and founder of Medi AI. Sandeep and I discussed many examples of how AI and big data are rapidly transforming the face of healthcare. One of the interesting things he said to me, artificial intelligence creates a bit of consternation and anxiety among people in the context of healthcare. I like the term augmented intelligence. It's non-scary and non-threatening. Here's Sandeep on augmented intelligence. Yeah, it's a very good point that you raised there. Uh, the American Medical Association uses a term called augmented intelligence. I think that artificial intelligence kind of creates a bit of uh, consternation, anxiety amongst people. I like the term augmented intelligence. It's non-scary, non-threatening. It, what it means is that it is enhancing patient care, enhancing clinical care. And it also means that there is that level of collaboration between human clinicians and the AI aspects. And I think that's really the attitude and the kind of approach we should adopt and also portray in terms of how AI can be integrated into clinical care. I always believe there has to be a human oversight, no matter how powerful the AI is, even if we move from narrow AI to general purpose AI or uh, strong AI, we still need that human oversight. The one is not just because uh, we need that uh, uh, assurance from uh, um, assurance for patients that there is a human oversight, but it's also important that human clinicians that in terms of empathy, in terms of care, they are involved and they are consulted in that whole package. We don't want to kind of ring fence the AI care from the human care. So it's really important to integrate that. I think that's the way to approach things. Two of my guests, Jillian Doherty of the Data Lab and Sandeep Reddy of MediAI, both work at the intersection of AI and healthcare. They spoke about how there's a movement around creating continuous healthcare models using data and AI. Here's what they each had to share about their experiences. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a huge movement around that health and well-being um, and integrated data. So data from either devices you wear, smartwatches, uh, other uh, experience and how you're feeling and how that is integrated with what traditionally has been siloed uh, healthcare data from your uh, doctors and your clinicians uh, and actually a more holistic view of the individual is much more powerful and you also feel much more listened to. Actually we can spot different patterns of how people are coping with treatment that will hopefully lead to improving, improved treatment pathways in the future. Important because what happens is currently the way care, uh, clinical care or medical care is delivered is very episodic. You go to a doctor, sure. you spend the 15, 20 minutes with the doctor, and then you're out and you lose that connection between the doctor or the healthcare provider. What we should be looking at is this continuous care model. In episode six, I spoke to Mikita Shepper, Managing Director and Executive Vice President of Amadeus. 
a company that uses technology to underpin every part of the travel industry. From improving operations to enhancing hospitality, Mikhail had a lot of great thoughts to share. The moment that caught my attention, on a mobile phone, you basically have five results that matter. And it's pretty important for an Expedia or an Amadeus to make sure you provide the right file to each individual person. This is a perfect example of how companies are competing for the scarcest asset on the planet, your time and attention. Uh, because most consumers don't go behind after the first page. And talking first page, which would mean that you actually are looking on a computer, which most people don't do. They're on a mobile phone. So on the mobile phone, you basically have five results that matter. And it's pretty important for an Expedia or when we enable a seven day search to make sure that you provide the right five there. Because typically for a flight, um, as Amadeus, our traditional search results return 200 flight results. But in reality, people want to see five and those need to be the most relevant. And then so how do you take, uh, and that's really where, where data comes in and AI comes in on really fine tuning and understanding how to make sure that you have the right five so people actually convert. I also chatted with fellow podcaster Greg Palmer, vice president of the Finnovate Group. We discussed some of the major trends and innovations in fintech, and there were many fascinating moments. We talked about bias in AI and how lending decisions are skewed towards the status quo. What I found interesting was this contrarian view, that the current lending model is actually dystopian, that the assessment of creditworthiness is fundamentally flawed, and that AI can make strides to solving this problem and making credit more widely available. So I think I'll start by saying, I think we're already in a dystopian lending situation. I think that the situations that we have and the way that we look at credit worthiness is fundamentally flawed and, and it's archaic. It's based on things which don't have a huge amount of relevance. If you look at credit scoring as trying to answer the simple question, will you pay us back? And that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's trying yep. to answer this basic question, will you pay us back? And I think if you look at the system that we have in place and you look at you know, recent history, it's not too hard to say that we do a really pretty bad job of, of anticipating who's going to pay us back, right? This is, you know, the, we, and we sort of just accept this. We accept this risk that it exists here. We accept that, you know, we can do the best we can, but we still know there's going to be, you know, X number of defaults and we build that in to all of the models and everything like that. And, and, and I think this is where it gets really difficult for, for banks to move beyond that because, you know, that it, knowing a system is broken is one thing. Replacing it with a system that's better is another thing altogether. Last but certainly not the least, I chatted with Peng Gong, four-time entrepreneur, a true visionary in technology, and the managing director and co-founder of Mongsil Ventures. It's no surprise, Peng has a lot of great stories and anecdotes to share based on his experiences founding four very different yet highly successful companies. One of my favorite moments was when he said, if there's a theme I'd like to run through all my companies, including Mongsil, it is what's the ridiculous state of the world that I'm trying to fix? What a wonderful question. Is, is there's a theme I would run through all my companies, including uh, Mongsil, is uh, what, what's the ridiculous state of the world I'm trying to fix? Right? Why, why, how does my existence address the state of the world that I think is kind of silly or nuts, 
right? Uh, so in, in the case of uh, Match, uh, Match, Match's parent company was actually called Electric Classifieds. It wasn't just dating. Right? So it was, how do you find something to buy or sell online right? or, or transact online uh, as opposed to newspapers, right? Um, so the, the, the previously, if you wanted to find something, your, your fingers got ink on it, right? Because you're looking- mm, Your fingers are doing the walking. Through, yeah, <laughs> through the classified ads. And this made no sense at all. You know, you, how many ads can you read per minute, right? Not that many. Peng is not just a venture capitalist. He is the founder of one of the original algorithmic companies, the dating site Match.com. Peng is often asked what makes these platforms work. He believes that the data you share can be very effective in bringing you closer to a match. And he shares some wonderful dating and algorithmic wisdom. Opposites might attract, but it is the similarities that sustain. Uh, to be honest, I haven't been uh, following the dating business that much. Uh, but the ones I've seen, and you can imagine having founded Mesh, come anyone doing a dating company ends up finding themselves okay, to you. my door <laughs> doorstep. But um, uh, it, a lot of it is just people having different spins on how the matchup happens, right? Some some go on dinners, lunches. You know, uh, some is just an initial conversation online, etc. So, so it's not about the algorithm. Uh, it's about letting humans discover um, what works for them, right? Uh, so, a, a lot of it is not about trying to get massive uh, uh, matches, but but there is some level of efficiency in in dating programs, which is why they're so successful. Well, it's very simple. If you walk into a room with a um, hundred people, and even if your ideal match is there, the chances are you might not even meet him or her and have a chance to talk to him or her, let alone get the uh, the first date, etc. Right? Um, because it's one in a hundred. It's very difficult for you to find one in a hundred uh, when you have an hour or two at a party. Mm -hmm. and, this alcohol and friends all over the place. Um, but if you ask the computer, you know, here are the, you know, 50 things I like and, you know, things I don't like, etc. You just take a whole bunch of data and uh, you run it over that hundred people, you know, the matches pop up just very, very clearly. Right? Mm -hmm. And so when you go out on a date with this person, you know, your, your long-term your long-term um, matches are there. So it's just, you have chemistry, right? So it gets uh, relatively simple, right? Because if you have chemistry, then long-term you have, you don't have problems. Oh, I, I guess I should say this uh, um, for dating. Uh, it's the opposites might attract, but it's the similarities that sustain. So if you're building long-term relationships, right? You need value systems, background, culture, belief systems that are very similar, right? Um, and you need to understand each other so the daily interactions are not full of friction. We're ending this list of top moments with another gem from Peng. Peng tells us how algorithms sync with your brainstem. Sounds dystopian? 
let's just recall how often we have doom scrolled through TikTok or Instagram consuming the content they push at us. He tells us how this works. You know, when you go to something like TikTok or Facebook or Instagram, there's something behind the scenes that shows you, look at this next, look at this next, look at this next, right? What they do in those algorithms causes people to just sit there and look at the, the next thing. And the engagement uh, increases uh, either revenues or uh, click-throughs on ads, which is revenues anyway. Okay. Um, and the interesting part is that algorithm is syncing up with your brainstem. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is going, yeah, look at this, look at this, look at this. And you're not even thinking about it. You're just going, okay, okay, okay. And um, I, I think that's a very interesting um, discovery that the algo guys have made uh, that really uh, digs into the fundamentals of the human brain and how, how we, we absorb things. And I think it can be used for bad, it can be used for good, or it can be used to make money. That brings us to the end of season two of Slaves to the Algo. While my guest had many different experiences and examples to share, a common theme for me through season two was the fact that many of them talked about how AI can help us go beyond transactions and build relationships with all our stakeholders. After listening to this season's guest, I continue to wonder how AI is going to change the way we live, we work, we interact with the world around us. We'll be back with season three for more great insights that help you and your business stay relevant in the age of AI. And we hope you continue to stay safe in the age of COVID. This is Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data and host of Slaves to the Algo. Slaves to the Algo is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to rate, share, subscribe and share widely with your network. See you in a few months.